Welcome back, everybody, to another episode, and this one is brought to you by Laura Lee Smith. She's a real estate agent for Better Homes and Garden Real Estate in the Bryan College Station, Texas, and surrounding areas. And we just moved into our very first home. We have our pictures on the wall, the couch just where we want it, you know, after my wife and I have worked a really long day, and we come home, and we get to see this wonderful place that's ours, and it's warm and cozy, and we have our own bedroom set up that we, that we did perfectly, and that's where the podcast goes on, too, with a little table, and... So it's kind of like a studio as well and just everything's so wonderful about it and it makes us so happy to walk into our own place and if you want that same feeling, then give Laura Lee a call and see why she is voted the number one real estate agent in the world in my mind. Her number is 979-218-2315. That's 979-218-2315. This episode is also partially brought to you by 1541 Coffee Shop here in College Station, Texas. Sam, the owner of 1541, who I had on the podcast, sent me a message saying I should have this guy on the podcast. And he's got so many great stories, and he's such a pleasure to talk to that you would love having him on. And we're going. All right. That's it. Let's go. Mr. Harper. Mr. Bill Harper. Bill Harper. (laughs) Bill Harper. Yes, sir. Um, I got your contact through Sam. Sam, yes. Yeah, fifteen forty one coffee shop. Great guy. I really like that fella. He is so helpful and so generous and so caring. He's not a restaurant owner. He's a friend. Really and truly, he yes, is. Yeah. Yes, yes, I really. Oh, okay. So I'm glad we're together. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm oh, really another glad. thing that you should know is I had a little bit of trouble speaking. Now. Oh. So be prepared. <laughs> oh, I'm prepared. All I right. got you. I got you covered. All right. So he he was telling me you have like every time you come to the coffee shop, you have all these great stories. Like he loved the com- talking to you conversations, and he couldn't rave enough about it. But it's like, man, you should have this guy on the podcast. He has oh. such great stories. Okay. Um, to tell, and so that's how I reached out to you, and and uh, because Sam is a f- really good friend of my wife's and and a friend of mine like yeah. I I know him through you know through her and I've been to his coffee shop plenty of times before that I love their coffee so yeah. um and then you sent me an email and it had a deal about the uh 1974 Huntsville prison oh yeah thing you wrote a book about it yes sir yeah and so that automatically piqued my interest to start oh, talking about that and just just because it's a crazy event if you read about it and everything and then you have a book that book is called 11 Days in Hell. Yes, sir. Yeah, with the colon, the 1974 uh, Carrasco Siege in Huntsville, Texas. Okay, that's the title. Yes, sir. How did you come about to write that book? Hmm, interesting. Uh, I was president of the Brazos Writers Group here in town. Oh, 10 years, twice, and I was twice, in, and on one of those occasions, you want to get the doggies? Uh, they'll be all right. They'll, okay. they should settle down. If they get wild, I'll go out there. And okay. On, on one of those occasions, I asked the curator of the, uh, not the, not the. All right, let me go, let me go. Hold on. We're going to take a quick pause. I asked the curator of one of the libraries at Texas A&M to come speak to our group, our writer's group, to tell them what resources that the library had uh, for writers. 
So he came to our group and he talked and he did his thing and all that kind of thing. And one of the things he said was, I've never had anybody that I'm aware of from the writer's group that's ever been over there. And nobody jumped up to volunteer to go over. So I felt rather obligated as president, having invited this guy, I would go over so that a writer has finally been there. And I went over. And the young man behind the desk said, what would you like to see? I said, how about the Caras no, how about the Estelle papers? Estelle being the uh, uh, head of the Texas Department of Corrections at that time. I was aware of this fellow, it wasn't a guess. I, I knew what I was asking for. And the young man behind the desk said, well, we have 12 boxes of Estelle papers. Which box would you like to see? And I said, box number five. Just a shot in the dark. So he gave me box number five and took me back into the reading room and sat me down and I was alone in the reading room. And I'm there feeling, you know, I'm here, I'm here as an obligation to the speaker. I really don't care about this crap, but I'm here. So I sat there and I started going through the Estelle papers. Box number five. I'm bored to death. <laughs> but the guy is over in the corner, so I've got to stay there for a while. You know, I can't just walk out. So finally I came across something. Well, there's all kinds of stuff in there about uh, hello, my name is, all those badges of meetings he's been to. He was a big deal in the, uh, in the uh, AA group, not as a customer, but as a director of the AA operation, the uh, 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 Alcoholics Anonymous AA. Okay. So I'm bored to death reading all this stuff, but suddenly over here in the corner I found a packet a little small packet of newspaper clippings about this big deal of a prison takeover in uh, Huntsville. I'm a for I was, well, I still am a former newspaper man. I started out at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, well, it was then too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, well, it was on January 28th, 1945, 1945, that I started out in the newspaper business. Wow. 1945. Wow. I started out as a copy boy at the floor. Anyhow, <clears throat> I saw this packet of newspaper clippings. There's just a few of them about this big deal. And I thought to myself, well, my God, what a story. But it's been covered from top to bottom, inside out. It must have been in every newspaper in the country and blah, 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 blah. I said to myself, whoo. I came back after that experience and talked to Bob Wyatt. Does that name ring a bell? Um, no, sir. Bob Wyatt is Mr. Well, at one time he was Mr. FBI. He would have succeeded J. Edgar Hoover if Bob Wyatt had wanted to, but he wanted to stay in College Station and be back here with all his friends. Wow. He was Mr. FBI. He is the sharpest guy ever, next to my father, of course. He's the <laughs> sharpest guy I ever met in my life. Bob Wyatt is a legend in the FBI. And if ever you want to do something else, do it on Bob Wyatt. I swear to goodness, you'll find stories that you won't believe. But Bob Wyatt was involved in that thing over at Huntsville. He just happened to be there that day when that thing started. He was over there on a federal case. Some prisoner was arguing he was being charged illegally or something. So anyhow, Bob was just there. He was leaving, and this thing broke out. 
this takeover where they shot at one o'clock in the afternoon in, in, in the library, bang, the, the bad guy had a gun. Bob is in his car getting ready to pull away. Well, I'm telling you too much about that. But anyhow, that's how I got in, into that story. Now, where are we going from there? Well, I kind of like the details of it are pretty, pretty crazy. And I, I like just reading up on it just from your email. Like yeah. I kind of heard about it, but I never really paid attention. Well, it's yeah. 1974. You wouldn't have paid any attention to it. Anyhow, I was born more. six years later. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you weren't quite aware at that time. No. And uh, anyhow, I understand later that it was the second biggest story in the country after it got to, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, ten days of this going on, of this takeover, of this uh, siege at this huge prison with all the details. It was the second biggest story next to somebody, I think his name was Nixon. He was resigning at the time oh. in, in 1974. Even so, I know about that. There one. you go, okay. <laughs> well, it was a big deal. Yeah. But it never did get the coverage it should have gotten because nobody followed up on it, I guess. What, what I had was I had the advantage of interviewing the people after it was all over, after some retrospection on their part. Uh, I was able to interview almost everybody that took part in that operation on the good side and not on the bad side because all three of those guys were either killed in the in the siege or executed later. But I had the advantage of interviewing a lot of people involved and the best thing that's ever been said about that book is from the people who were involved who said, I learned things I never knew before. Really? And the reason they learned things they never knew before was because I was fortunate enough to contact the curator of the uh, <clears throat> Texas Department of Archives in in Austin. I went over there and said, what do you have on this thing? And blah, blah, blah. Well, we have this. Blah, 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 blah. And they were very helpful and very accommodating. As those librarians always are. They're the most marvelous group of people God ever put on the face of this earth because they cannot do enough for you. They will not do it. They keep going, going. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I got this way. Wait a minute. And you know, I'm trying to get out of there. And finally, this, this librarian said, well, I don't suppose you're interested, but we happen to have here 84 audio cassette tapes that were made during the siege of the good guys talking to the bad guys, the bad guys talking to the good guys, the hostages talking to the governor, the, the uh, hostages talking to their family, the hostages talking to the good guys begging for their lives. Oh, you mean I can have all this? Well, you can pay for it, yes, but okay. So I bought it, 84 tapes, and I brought them home. And I don't know how much time you have for me to tell these stories, but they go on. As many as you want. Okay. What happened was, as you can imagine, the bad guys were all uh, uh, Latinos, if I may. Uh, and most, most of this conversation is in Spanish. Beyond CC, I don't know any Spanish. <laughs> so I called a friend of mine who was a professor of uh, 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 Spanish languages, I guess, at A&M. I said, would you come over and help me uh, interpret for me? 
So he came over and he sat down and he listened. And he listened. And he listened some more. And finally he said, I don't understand a word these buggers are saying. <laughs> because they're talking street Spanish and I'm talking Castilian Spanish. Oh. So it was altogether different. <laughs> now the story goes on. I have a daughter who's involved with the uh, uh, federal government in uh, Tucson, Arizona, with the people coming across the border and being arrested and all that. This is before the big border problems, you know, back in the year 2000, thereabouts, when I'm writing. And uh, <clears throat> they deal with street Spanish all the time out there. Not my daughter, but people in her department. So she hooked me up with one of her people, and he, I sent him the tapes. He interpreted and sent the interpretation back to me. So therefore, I had the information that nobody else had just because of that librarian lady who insisted that I, well, maybe you, you if you want these, I'll sell them to you, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so now I've got information that nobody else had at all in any way, shape, or form. These tapes had never been listened to by anybody. They had been sitting in the library out there in, in uh, Austin. So out of all this stuff, like all the, the investigations as to how this stuff happened, nobody had listened to the actual tapes at all? No, that's according to the librarian. You're the first one, $5 a piece, 85 I bought $5 a piece for 85 and said, come on, bring And then the interpretation business, and that went on and on forever because we're communicating between the guy in Tucson, Arizona, and me, and he's interpreting yeah. there and sending me stuff. So that went on and on. Here's another little side, side effect to that story. That book started in my my. I started writing that book in the year 2000, I think it was. And it came out in 2005, I'm not sure. But in that time frame, five years. It took me five years to write that book because I was every day over at the library. Every day over at the library. I didn't have, what's it called? Uh, Google. Google. <laughs> yeah. I had to go over to the library. Yes, sir. And go through the files. Google, I could have written it in two weeks, I guess. I'm not sure, but it took me five years to do it without Google. Probably with your skills back then? Yeah, you probably could have written it in two well, weeks. I, I'm not sure about skills. But well, anyhow. I mean, the, the, the skills of, so the way you had to do things, um, Well, if you had that with the knowledge and the technology that they have today, you can probably produce it faster. Because oh, you I had to do it sure. a different way. You had to send these tapes off and use your resources and... Let me say this, if I may, uh, if I may brag a little bit. Uh, that book is the first book I ever wrote at 11 Days in Hell. That book was awarded the, uh, uh, something from the Writers League of Texas as the best in nonfiction for the year it came out. So I had some skill there, anyhow, but I had resources, 88 audio cassette tapes that nobody ever had, which gave me all kinds of insights into what was going on. So when I was interviewing some of the people, I knew things that they didn't. And they were learning from me when I'm supposed to be learning from them. But then you could ask them questions and, and, right. and spark their memory and That's really, exactly right. really interrogate them 
to the fullest extent. That's exactly what happened. And they were shocked at what I knew, and they were shocked at what they were learning about what they didn't know. The negotiations that went on for, for months and months with that, oh, anyhow, the negotiations that went on for that 11 days were intense. And they were, an in, they were, a, they were a, a course in learning in retrospect in how to negotiate with a hostage taker, with hostage takers. They, the, the bad guys wanted civilian suits. Okay, what sizes? Bling, 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 three. We want three suits. We want ties, neckties, shirts. Okay, what sizes? Uh, 20, oh, I'm sorry, whatever the numbers, 47 large or whatever the yeah. numbers. So they bought them at 44 large, the wrong size. So the guys got angry, said, no, this is the wrong suit. But the guys were, the good guys were doing that on purpose to delay. You want to string these negotiations out as long and as far as possible until they get to the point where the bad guys are desperate and are going to hurt somebody. But in the meanwhile, you want to string it out, hoping that something will happen if nobody gets hurt and somebody's going to make a mistake or something and you'll be able to close this incident out. The negotiations were intense and they are a course in, in maybe not today, but shortly thereafter in how to negotiate with hostage takers. And, and the guy who was be, behind all of this was this Bob Wyatt guy that I'm talking to you about. Bob Wyatt, Mr. FBI, ended up here as the head of the university police force before he retired. After he retired from FBI, he stayed here and was uh, hired as head of the uh, university police force. Bob Wyatt was such a man of principle. He would give a parking ticket to his mother if she were illegally parked. That's a fact. That's Bob Wyatt. And boy, if you could learn more about Bob Wyatt, you'd be having more to talk about than I'll ever give you. I'll tell you that. Anyhow, where do I go from here? I, I don't know where I am. Let's talk, like, I'd like to know more about Philadelphia just because we went, we went through that. So we do trips, not presents for our kids. Yeah. We don't buy any gifts. We take them on a trip. And yeah. this one was we flew to New York and we rented a minivan and we drove all the way back down here. Okay. And so we, we wanted to stop by and see Philadelphia. Sure. DC, you know, you, you got to see Philadelphia and Independence Hall and all that kind of stuff. Philadelphia was way better than what I thought it was going to okay. be. It was like it overachieved in my mind. I thought it was going to be cool, and I wanted to get a Philly cheesesteak from yeah, there because yeah, it, yeah. it, it was absolutely delicious. Yeah. Like you can't. I had the first one. <laughs> really? Yes. I can't, I can't remember the guy's name. He was up on Fairmount Parkway. Uh, in Philadelphia, and it was Joe's Steakhouse or something, and this was where the Philly cheesesteak started in that guy's store. So I had one of the first of the Philly cheesesteaks. But anyhow, and I've had many since, so I've always enjoyed them, but never as much as those in Philadelphia. Uh, while you were there, did you get to uh, Independence Hall and, and the Liberty Bell? And, oh, yes, sir. Yeah, yes, did, sir. did you get to the Olympia, the ship that's on the Delaware River? We did not. Okay. We did not get there. That was Admiral Dewey's command ship in the Battle of the Manila Bay in 1898 or anything. Anyhow, it's there in the river not far from 
Independence Hall. Yeah, we can kind of see everything. Okay. Like, you can kind of see it because it's right there along sure. the channel. So, sure. you know, all that sure. downtown area or whatever. And the Delaware River Bridge. Yep. 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 It, it was it was different, I guess, uh, growing up in Texas, obviously. Mm-hmm. Dad, growing up a Cowboys fan, you get the Eagles. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. see the Eagles fans. And I had friends who played for the Eagles. Like, who played for the Eagles. I had a friend that played for them. Who? And uh, his name is Greg Stuttered. Stuttered? Stuttered. Stuttered. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he didn't okay. play for him a whole long right. time. Okay. But I just remember like him talking about the fans in Philly. Oh. And so I yeah. had... They booed Santa Claus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He didn't say that they were pleasant. He <laughs> said he'd rather be a New York Giant. Yeah, right. <laughs> because they were nicer in New York than they are in Philly. That's right. But, um, so I have this picture that everybody in Philadelphia, like Philadelphia is like that. So I'm excited to see it, but I have this thing in my mind. And then when I get there, I'm like... The people are super nice. Yeah. I mean, they were crazy nice to us. And it was like, this whole trip was like a history tour. Oh, it's really what it was. Sure. You know, you go New York, Philadelphia, sure. D.C. There's sure. nothing but history that's right. on every road you drive there. That's, that's where the whole down. thing started for crying out loud. Yeah. yeah. And Boston so, to Washington. Yep. So we, uh, uh, Philadelphia really... It, I mean, it stuck out so much to the kids. They liked it so much oh, that good. two of them bought sweaters with the Liberty Bell on it so they could match, you know? <laughs> oh, good. So it, it was uh, it was just a, a really cool place. And to know that you started as a media person to start there at the time frame you did is a pretty big deal. Well, I don't know what's a big deal about it, except that I'm still around from 1945 where I started to work. <laughs> uh <clears throat> But the newspaper business sure has changed since I was in it. Yeah. And uh, I went back to the Philadelphia Inquirer about 10 years ago. I forget when it was. I happened to be in Philadelphia. So I went back to the Inquirer building and I walked in. It was a little bit different. Uh, the biggest difference was that when I first walked in there in 1945, the elevators were human-operated. They're not human-operated anymore. <laughs> you know. I, I, I went up to the fourth floor, which was where the city room was at the Philadelphia, and still is, and I walked down the hall that I walked down that first time, down the wooden floor, and you could hear the clackety-clack of the typewriters, and... and the, Linotype room was right next door and the clackety-clack of the linotype machines and the editors screaming for copy boy and all that kind of stuff. And the hubbub of the uh, uh, newsroom at that time in 1945 was overwhelming. I walked down this time 50 years later and it's like being in a surgical hospital. There's no wooden floors. They're all sealed. Uh, There's no desks with people screaming for a copy boy. There's no overhead uh, pneumatic machine carrying the copy from the uh, newsroom to the linotype room. There's no sound at all. And I wondered where I was because that's not where I was before. And it's altogether different and just, I didn't like it. (laughs) it. It wasn't the same and I guess that's a natural feeling. But it just was not the same, and it, it never will be again, that's for sure. Not the same energy. There's not no. the same passion for no, no, writing, no. Uh, finding the stories as what, you know, because back then, that was the YouTube, that was the, I mean, that's the CNN, the NBC, sure. that's all of that stuff. That was back a source then, of information. That's it. That's all people had to 
know what was going on anywhere. Sure. And the best job you have in the newspaper business is being the librarian in the newspaper <laughs> because you know everything about everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a spectacle, and I'll never forget it, and it'll never leave my mind that those days early at that newspaper day. Uh, and I, I regret that I didn't capture it even more fully than in my mind. But who thought about it then? So it was a wonderful experience. I met such a wonderful group of people, uh, newspaper men who were not editorial writers. They were reporters. They gave you the facts. You know that uh, TV show, Just Give Me the Facts, Ma'am. That's what the newspaper business was. We gathered the facts, we told the facts, and let the people draw their own conclusions. We didn't draw the conclusions for them, except on the editorial page. But I had nothing to do with that, so anyhow. Uh, I worked at the Inquirer for uh, 15 years. I left the <clears throat> news side, and uh, anyhow, I, I went into the military uh, in 19... 48 to 50, and then the Korean War came along and I went back in from 51 to 54. So in, in the interim of one of those military assignments, uh, I was transferred over to the sports department from the news department because they wanted a writer over there to write for the, about the Big Five, Temple University, Pennsylvania University, LaSalle, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So I was uh, covering Temple University uh, on, uh, on the uh, sports side for the Philadelphia Inquirer until I left in about 58, I think it was late 58, late, yeah, November of 58, that's about 14 years uh, at the uh, newspaper. I was byline sports writer. Recently, I tried to retain, re, re, get some copies of my byline sports writing, and the only way I can get them is to buy them. Really? Yes. They're not on the internet anywhere? That's what they tell me. Wow. So anyhow, I didn't feel like buying them, and I didn't feel like researching it <laughs> any further, and that was the end of that. But they're there somewhere, though. They're there somewhere, yes. I know they're there because I, I can see my byline. Well, my father used to keep a scrapbook of my writings. Now, I don't know what you know about the newspaper business, but for a morning newspaper, you write a story at 6 o'clock in the evening about the basketball game that's coming up at 8 o'clock tonight, and you have to fill space in the paper until the game is over so you can write the game story and go in that space. And this story you write early is a bunch of bull. I mean, you know, you're just filling space. Maybe Harry will play tonight and maybe he won't. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you're filling space. You're holding space for the game. Yeah. So my father cut out the early game, the early space story, the junk stuff, because that's the paper he got at home, and he never did the good stuff. You know, when you're, when you're writing at a game... A cold grave, what, what's that one? My friend, what, 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 the Four Horsemen Road again, you know, the, the lead into that. Well, you know, I tried to emulate some of that stuff myself. And uh, St. Joe opened the door to heaven to St. Patrick's today when they uh, lost at the uh, uh, NCAA tournament. That, that's the kind of thing I'd like to write. My problem was Leo Francis Xavier 
Reardon, the sports editor, the good Catholic sports editor, would have nothing to do with anything having to do with St. Francis opening the door for St. Joseph's. You couldn't write that stuff. You could say St. Francis beat the hell out. No, you could say St. Francis won 29 to 33, or whatever the number was, against LaSalle at Madison Square Garden last night. That that would be your lead sentence. That's all right with Leo. But St. Francis opened the door for St. Joseph to enter the NCAA tournament. You couldn't write that first. So we had our problems. But anyhow, that's not about the problems they have in the newspaper business today. We wrote what we saw. We wrote what we heard. We wrote what we were expected to write, the action, what the people were interested in, what happened. Not why it happened, unless it was, you know, germane, but not because this is why this is why I think it happened, as they're doing in the newspaper business today. Yes. Okay. From the agenda side, you really like, we're almost like a little detective. Well, in some cases, yes. In some cases, sure. And certainly on, on the, well, yes, in both sides. I'm saying on the news side as well as the sports side. Yeah. Because on the news side, when you go out and you cover a house fire, you want to know why, why it happened. And who can tell you? Uh, if the people are in the house, uh, you know, bingo, they're gone. Uh, the uh, firemen aren't hanging around doing detective work, so you have to do, do the detective work if you want to know. And there's a little story with that. I covered a house fire with a guy by the name of Harry Carafin, who was a legend in the newspaper business at that time. I was a rookie. And there was a bunch of trash from the house that they firemen pulled out, you know, left it in the gutter for the trash men to come the next day and pick it up. And I saw this pile of trash, and there were some, you know, records, the old wax records in, yes. in the pile. Yes, sir. And I said to Harry, now here's a line, Harry, we can use. Oh, damn, my memory just got away. <laughs> here's a line we can use. It had to do with a song that was very popular at that time about music. And Harry laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. He said, you know, kid... 20 years ago, I would have used that line, but not today. Because, <laughs> and incidentally, Harry was, uh, was, was uh, drummed out of the newspaper business because he was caught taking bribes. Wow. And that wasn't all uncommon in the newspaper business. That's like stories you just hear about, yeah. you know, yeah. watching old movies. Well, and that's about the only place you're going to hear about, especially since this is 90 years ago. I mean, not 75 years ago when I started. Uh, That's an interesting fact, too, that comes to my mind an awful lot. I could tell you anything, and you could not refute it. I could tell you anything that happened in 1945, and you could not refute it, because there's nobody left. (laughs) I'm the only one. I was 15 years old. Everybody I went to work with was 25. At least twenty. So you were fifteen years old when you started writing for the like. Started Not writing, but when I started working for the yeah. Philadelphia Inquirer, January twenty eighth, nineteen forty five. I nineteen forty four. Yeah. For, no, it was forty five. It was forty four or forty five. One or the one or the other. Uh, I started work there, 
and I could only work half-time, part-time, because I was only 15 years old. You had to be 16 to work full-time. So from January to May, I worked half-time, for which I got paid $8.82 a week. So that's half-time. When I went full-time, I got $16.04 a week. Whoa. 16 uh, th- My pay was 18 but they took out a dollar ninety six in taxes. <laughs> <laughs> Honest engine. Honest engine. So, so those are insights that are a little amusing today as, yeah. as just witnessed. But, but goodness yeah. sake, it certainly was a different time then. And, and a, a very different time. And a, a much better time then. But uh, I'll start editorializing in a minute if I get into that. <laughs> so you lead me on and I'll see where we can go. So the... the now, I guess uh, you got called into the military. What did you do in the military? <laughs> what was your role? Were you, like, reporting in there? Um, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I... No, I won't tell you exactly what I... will tell you what happened. Uh, on February the 3rd, 1948, I... Uh, <clears throat> I didn't run away from home, but I ran away and enlisted in the military, in the U.S. Army, 1948. I'm standing there with a bunch of other guys saying, blah, 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 yes, I do. I hold the Constitution and all that stuff you swear to when you... This guy taps me on his shoulder and he says, hey, kid, how'd you like to get in the CIA? What the hell's the CIA? Well, that's an interesting branch of the service because you get to wear civilian clothes. You don't have to wear that uniform, kid. Wow. And you do all this secret stuff, kid. Wow. So that sounds great. And I swore to go in the CIA. And when I took that oath into the CIA, I swore then that I would never do holds anything I see here, anything I hear here, anything I do here. And I have lived up to that oath ever since 1948. I have never told a soul anything I did in the CIA for five years, one month, and 11 days. Never told a soul, and I'm not going to tell you either. That is perfect. Oh, good. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story. All right. Well, that's that's a true story. That's crazy. You do not hear people, uh, especially nowadays, you do not know people that will uphold things like that well people were different then I guess now see and uh, uh, this uh, is why I love my wife so much because and oh is that you the remind- only reason <laughs> this is- there's a lot of reasons okay, that I love my right, wife right. so much but she is one when you want to say she calls herself a rule follower uh-huh. and she upholds rules and you remember how you said he would give a ticket to his mom yeah that's her okay. like she, she'll do the same to me as she would do to anybody that walks in her place of business. Like, I have to uphold the same standard, that, and our kids have to uphold the same standard, and so on. My, um, my, this, like, my grandpa grew up through depressions, empty spittoons. Uh, then, you know, as a kid, made his way, made money for the family in sure. Arkansas, and then, you know, worked his way up to owning his own food service. And, okay. You know, I used to hear stories from him all the time. You know, he's a big baseball fan. I, I love sitting and talking with my grandpa because he had, there is such, there's a certain amount of wisdom and knowledge and um, and things that you can take away from those uh, values mm-hmm. that you can't get mm-hmm. 
unless you actually like his I used to take myself and put myself in his position. You know, the world I lived in as a kid was nothing like this thing, you know, and and I'm going, You made it through like you did this and you know he wouldn't tell he was not a um a grandstander, he didn't like to tell stories, but if you knew him and you were close to him, he would he would kinda of talk. He, and, he he would he would know you were interested in what he had to say. Right, and we were his grandkids. Yes. So he, you know, he would talk. He's real quiet, old man, and yeah. he never went out. Never really talked or socialized that much yeah. with people. And then, you know, when he passed away, come to find out, he's got all these friends that he wrote letters. You know, he wrote letters to friends that he had made, but he kept that private conversations between mm. him and that person. Okay. He didn't tell anybody else. All right. And then all of a sudden, when he passes away, my dad finds these like folders and letters. Oh my gosh! It's just really, really cool. So oh, that's why man. I'm sitting here thinking all my family values between both my grandpas, really, and they're they're very much. And then my wife now is the same thing that you just said about the CIA, where it's I didn't tell anybody, and I'm not going to tell anybody because I promised that I wouldn't tell anybody. I envy the hell out of you if you'll pardon my French. <laughs> Because you had two grandfathers. Yes, sir. And you talked to them. And they talked to you. I had two grandfathers. I have one memory of a grandfather, of a grandparent. I sat on his knee and he told me, Billy, 9.45 is the same as quarter to 10. He was trying to teach me how to tell time. That's the only, only, only memory I have of my grandparents. And that distresses me no end because all I used to teach memoir writing here. I'd open every class with when an old man dies, a library burns down. And those libraries have burned down and there's no access to them. My grandparents, because I never got to talk to them. And I'm, my parents never talked to me about their parents. First place, my father was disowned by his family. And my mother's parents, I know nothing about. It wasn't a big deal to them, but it's a big deal to me because I don't have anything from grandparents. Billy, it's 9.45. It's the same as quarter to 10. Wow. Entirety. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. That's it. Two word, two sentences. That's, that. That's criminal for me. It, I mean... If you have a time problem, I don't. Oh no, that like that. My wife's coming to pick up uh, my what? my daughter for a swim, so um, I got I've got a little bit more time to talk. And I'm at your disposal. So I'm just I'm. It's bringing back a lot of like memories for me talking to my grandpa about mm. some stuff in that time frame, and it's kind of I don't want to say magical. Um, obviously, I like living with all the technology and sure. all that stuff. But sure. I do. I'm. I'm really fascinated with how people back then made things out of like they had to make them by like their own the creativity, the invention. You think of now, you know, it's it's easier because you have technology to invent those, and it's sure. it's it's amazing what they do. I'm not taking anything away from that, but it's kind of like the guy who made the first wheel. You know, you had to make that up from scratch. Mm -hmm. you know, who's the first one to try the very first egg yeah, and let us know that that's a good tasting thing, you know, <laughs> that sort yeah. of thing. Is, oh, it, <laughs> Can you imagine that thing? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, my and that's just the way my brain works. Yeah. And, and, you know, like you said, you didn't, 
I didn't have much time with one of my grandparents because they had my dad when he uh, they were in their mid to late forties, and my grandma used to always call him the guess what honey, because it was a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like the youngest by far, and, mm. and so they were already older by the time I was born. So mm. I didn't have a whole lot of time, but it's, I seem like. You had more than two sentences. Yes. (laughs) And it feels like I maximized that time so much, like short time with them so much that I got an infinite amount of years. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It does indeed because I don't have what you have. Yeah. And I have no opportunity to ever have what you have. Whatever you have, you'll have for the rest of your life and hopefully you will pass it on. I, again, when I was teaching memory, every one of you buggers should keep a journal every day. <laughs> what you did and who you saw and who you talked to and what you talked about. What you lived in, what house you lived in. Because 50 years or 100 years from now, people won't know about the houses we live in today. Unless you're a historian or something, you're going to go dig it out. Or, or And again, this is before Googling everything. But... How are you going to tell people what, what life was about in the year 2000 unless you write it down and pass it on or talk into a machine and pass it on? Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about. And that's what this is right I, here. I know. It stays there forever. I'm walking right into your trap. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is it. This is the this is the thing that lasts forever. And you can yeah. tell your stories and whatever you have, whatever information, you know, people will know they can... You, all you have to do is search this on Google and you can find it. And who knows 10 years from now or 100 years from now what the means of communication will be. But it'll start from here. It's it's incredible. This yes. I love this. Like I yes. listen to so many and I find people that I'm interested in and I I go around and it just... it. I wanted to fill my time driving on the road like I drive so much with things that benefited me, not just mm. jumping. We're mindless. Driving on the road. Yes, sir. Journals. You're driving from here to Dallas, 180 miles. You're sitting behind the wheel doing nothing but watching the highway. Why aren't you talking into a recording machine? That's how this started. That's the way it should be. Everybody should have a recording machine in their car. <laughs> I agree with you. All right. I agree with you 100%. But finally somebody does. <laughs> this has been the most fun thing that I've ever done. Yeah. And and it all started at, with... You know, my wife gave me the shove and the push and said I needed to do it. And I did it while I was driving to location. I had 45 minutes to an hour in between my stops. And I just started talking about sure. a topic. And sure. I, I did, and it made the drive go by so oh, fast. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, so fast. Yes. I got there. I was like, oh, it's already over. I could keep going. And, and I've told my, uh, I have a friend that was a professional golfer that has all these cool stories. And he, he drove himself from tournament to tournament. And he has a really cool mind. He sees right. things in a, in a neat way. And I said, you should record all these conversations. And then you can edit them or whatever you want. But you can, like, that's that would be interesting for people to listen to. Sure. And at least for me. And somebody would find it interesting if I do, you know. So <laughs> I hope so. I hope I'm not that strange. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we'll pass judgment on that. <laughs> but I agree I with almost you. drank this for Christmas. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I agree. I agree that people should have the the tape recorder and mm-hmm. record things. And I mean, some people don't. They're not like that though. They like their you know they listen to their music and they cruise down the road and and that's what they do. And, um, 
And the music they listen to is... <laughs> that's another problem I have. I have 25,000 recordings of the big band era music okay. on, on my computer. That's the music you should be listening to, not this so, crap that's out there today. So I had... I, I had... Um, there was a Zenith... Oh, it might have been... It might be 74 or 64. I looked the data above it, but... Um, it was, I don't want to say state of the art, but it was like a big entertainment center. When, my, when yeah. the food service did good, my grandparents got it. Um, and it's a record player and a radio together. Okay. Plug sure. it in, the speakers are in it and everything. Sure. Then they had the case that was just as big for all yeah. the records yeah. right next to it. looked just like it. it took up like a full wall. Of mm-hmm. And I that's the one thing I still have from my grandpa. Outside of um, me and my brother, he was, my grandpa was a really child, like, Brooks Robinson grew up right next to him. Third basin? Yes, sir. Oh. And they, he used to sit on the the front porch with my grandpa there in Arkansas, and, and he'd spit sunflower seeds with each other, and my <laughs> grandpa would smoke a cigarette, and they they played catch together, and they yeah. talked baseball. Yeah, yeah. And they talked life. Yeah. Well, one of the people that he had correspondence all the way through his life with, and my dad found the letters, was with Brooks Robinson. Oh, so yeah. my dad has all the letters. Sense. And me and my brother, he gave me and my brother the assigned baseballs from all the things that Brooks would send in. Um, and you still have this, I trust? Yes, sir. And what are you going to do with it? Oh, I'm keeping it. You're what? I'm keeping it for my kids. No, 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 not keeping it. You're not, you're, you're, you've got to share it. Oh, the the baseball? Yes, you got to share it. Brooks Robinson, he's got insights about baseball that nobody has. Oh, yeah. my Well, my dad has... my So, my dad had the letters. Now, okay. Yeah. I don't know what he like what he has with the letters or whether... They did get broken into at one point, so I don't know if oh, those no. disappeared. But... They were um, stolen? Some? Uh, like, they ransacked my grandpa's house okay. after... And they just tossed going, it around? Yeah, and tore things up. Oh, so, I don't know if they missed there or not. My, my dad may still have those letters um, back and out. forth, but... Find but out. Your dad's I, not going to be around forever? Nope. I need, to, I need to ask him about the letters. That's right. But I know the he split the baseballs with me and my brother that like sports. So I have two of the baseballs. My brother has two Signed. of the baseballs. Yes, sir. By by teams. Oh, uh, the whole team? Well, yes. okay. Uh, the the team and then some of the World Series teams that he played. Oh, really? Yes. You got other the opposition to sign? Oh, yeah. Wow. I didn't know they did that. The Brooks Robinson apparently was one of the nicest dudes. Oh yes, around. I know that. I know that. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you're pretty close to him right there in D.C. writing for Philly, writing in Philly and stuff, weren't no, you? I, I didn't know Brooks as a person. I knew him as a ball player, and that's all. Yeah. Uh, and by the time Brooks Robinson was starring, I don't even think I was in the newspaper business anymore. Okay. So the cool story about that is after my grandpa passed away. My dad finds these letters and finds the stuff, and he, he just sends them. He calls and sent from work, sends a message to his secretary at, with, with the Orioles, and just says, "Hey, um, just just let him know that Homer Joyner passed away." So, so I think it was a, the next day or the day after. My dad got a phone call from Brooks, and they talked for hours, hours and hours, and he was like, "Man, I can't believe he." called and, and it wasn't recorded was it no no, no. I mean, back then, of course it was just, we didn't have like, like i'm old enough where i get to remember life without the internet so 
Wow. Yeah. It's amazing to my kids on my ancient, you know. I remember typewriters before they were electric. What do you think of that? <laughs> That's pretty great. But um, my grandpa had some. I used to play on them. So, uh, what? I used to, my grandpa had some of those typewriters I used to play on <laughs> But yeah, so he's that's how that's how good a dude Brooks. I always remember that, and he apparently my grandpa sent him uh, sent. I used to wear Orioles hats because yeah, I liked the sure, Orioles, and sure. I I would wear them. And my grandpa took a couple like, Polaroids of me when those were out, and he mailed them to Brooks Robinson and everything. So what were the Orioles before they were the Orioles? That I do not know. They were something before they were the Orioles. I. I think I'm not sure. I think they were. You might check on that. I think they were something else before they were the Baltimore. Orioles. They probably were. There's a lot of teams that weren't. Oh, yeah. that were something else, and then they changed names. Oh yeah, I remember the Philadelphia Athletics. I do. I know that one. Okay. I knew that one. Okay. Yes. Connie Mack. Yep. Cornelius McGillicuddy. That's I'm... Connie Mack. <laughs> <laughs> I sat on a bench. In Scheib Park, that's where the A's and the Phillies used to play in Philadelphia. Scheib Park. Connie Mack is the, uh, the uh, or, not the oracle, but the icon of baseball, I suppose, and still is in some senses for old folks. When you think of baseball in my generation, you think of Connie Mack. Connie Mack uh, formed the Philadelphia Athletics in the year 1900. They played, I think 1901 was their first year in the American League because that's when the American League started. Connie Mack, Elmer Vallow was a uh, right fielder for the Philadelphia A's in 1948 or somewhere around there. Elmer Vallow hits a ball out to right field and he's running around the bases and he's thrown out by a mile at third base. He comes back to the bench and... Connie Mack is ready to chew him out. I mean, he's going, Elma! Elma, you got to run with your head up, boy! That was the end of the chewing up. <laughs> Connie Mack. You know, today they're screaming all kinds of, what do you call them, expletives. Yeah. Expletives. Elma, you got to run with your head up, boy. And that was, you know, that was a chewing out. That was a chewing out. Back right, then. right. <laughs> Life was different. Not only baseball. Yeah, but ba- man, the, the baseball stories are just as good as some. I mean, yeah. it's it, it. Like I said, I'm a baseball fan anyway, yeah. so it, it made it made my day to just sit there and talk baseball. You know, Does his name Lou Gehrig ring a bell. Oh yeah, my grandpa got to see him play. Yeah, he saw him play and and DiMaggio and Ruth, and he used to tell me all about that. And I saw DiMaggio and Ruth play, and and Gehrig play for crying out loud. Yeah, that's that's in awesome. Philadelphia. Uh, Lou Gehrig, my, my, my grandpa's favorite baseball player, my first hero, baseball hero, and why? Because at uh, at Columbia University, my father went to Columbia University, and the story he told me was that he was the first baseman at for Columbia University, and told me he's beaten out by some kid by the name of Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig replaced my father. Oh, wow. wow, wow, Dad! No, yeah, yeah. Many years later, I looked it up. Twenty years between Lou Gehrig and my father. <laughs> Well, technically, he did replace him. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> oh, 
long awesome. gone. My father and his stories are something else. And then I, I could almost write a book on my father. That'd be a good, good title, wouldn't it? That would be. My father and his stories. That, w- I, that would be a fantastic book. My problem is I can't write anymore. I, uh, this uh, Parkinson's thing. But you can talk. Well, and the machines can almost no, write for no, you. No, no, you. What, my, it's not a physical thing that I can't write. It's a mental thing. Because when I write sentence one and then I write sentence two, I forgot what sentence one was. Or imagine chapter one versus chapter two. I've, I've written chapter one and now I'm in chapter. What did I write there? Did I write that before? You know, I, I have that problem. So it's such a struggle. A physical, mental struggle. Not not physical in the sense of typing or anything, but a physical struggle to bring myself to it. And the mental struggle of, of the memory problem. I just can't write it anymore. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry because I've got... I have a list this long of stories that could be written. I mean, they're great stories. I started to write the history of the, the internet, inner, inner highways, what I-45. Yeah. The inter, intercontinental highway, interstate highway system. Yeah. Great story. But bingo, I fell apart mentally and physically. And, and that's a great story. And I, as I say, I've got a list that long of stories. And if ever you want to start writing stories, I'll, I'll, I'll lend you my list for crying out loud. I, I don't know. I do know, but I haven't searched hard enough for other writers that could do these kinds of things. And now I'm so far out of the loop with the writers of today that I don't know anybody that I could approach with this list and say, here, take this list and do something with it. Because there are ideas in there that will blow your mind. And one of them is that guy we talked about earlier, Bob Wyatt. There is a story that should, God bless America, be written. I mean, that guy is something else that needs to be idolized and, and more, 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 uh, memorialized. That's hard for me to, me to say. <laughs> Anyhow, um, go. <laughs> well, um, have you ever... And I don't know if this is something that just wouldn't work with you, or have you ever thought? I don't know what do they call it, ghostwriting, or where you you talk to somebody and they write, and then that way they can decipher the things that you went over again the second time. No, I've never considered that, and I don't know why I have not considered that. Maybe because I just don't want to ask somebody. You know, in our generation, we didn't ask people to help us if we couldn't do it ourselves. It didn't get done. And I'm still that way, I guess. That's that's I get it that, and my wife gets mad at me when I and she's breaking that habit, where it's like, it's okay to ask. I'm very yeah, much I a. I learned that from watching my grandparents, my dad, and then me, and it's just from watching them do the same thing. If you grew up during the depression, there wasn't anybody to ask because nobody had anything. You had to do it. That's right. If you didn't do it yourself, it didn't get done, and that was a, almost a plaque on the wall. People forget about that. Yeah. About that time frame, I'm, they're so far removed from. Well, they from didn't that experience thing. it, let alone forget about it. They didn't experience it. Yeah, you know, like I said, I can tell any story I want because there's a little bit around left. <laughs> but I mean, when you know somebody who has experienced that, yeah. and you get close to them, it yeah, you you really and truly start to get closer to understanding. You know, when I hear my grandma say, you know, she was uh, a child of. What I think it was ten or twelve, mm. somewhere in between there, in in De Quincey, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and 
the her highlight was getting an orange for Christmas. Oh, you know, when you I, hear stories like that, you go, I'm sitting here with a house full of food and ice cream whenever I want, sure. or refrigerator. Ice cream. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and I'm, you know, I'm just like, oh, you know, this. And my grandma tells these stories, and I'm like, I can't even imagine Did, did your grandma ever tell a story about going to bed hungry with your stomach screaming at you? Oh yeah, I, yeah. That, that's the you know that's the whole reason he started my grandpa started food service. He said okay. everybody's got to eat. Yeah, everybody's got to eat. And my if grandma used to it. make us finish all of our food. Oh yeah, if we ordered something, we ate it. That, I still do to this day. <laughs> no yeah. matter how full I am, I finish, baby. Yeah, I keep telling my wife I'm a child of the depression. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, and and um, my grandpa never even got over. 98 pounds. I, don't, I think that was his weight he stayed at. He, did, he ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, and that was his favorite meal. Sure. And what, no matter, what a he delicacy. Went, as all the fancy things that he sold, the people he mm. took care of, the restaurants he went to, and he would order nice like nicer meals or whatever, but nothing crazy fancy, but his favorite. I weighed 135 pounds when I went in the Army in 1948. By the time I finished basic training, I was up to 150. <laughs> In 13 weeks. <laughs> I, I ate food like I never had before. Uh, as much as you, you hear people bitching about army food, you know, the mess hall and all that kind of yeah. thing. Boy, it was better food than I was having for a long, long time. So I I had that. That was one good part about the five years, one, one month and 11 days. Not many good parts, but that was one of them. Yeah, but that, I think, I mean, if you... St- I think if it's something that I understand, I would understand you being a writer, being a little bit like, if I want to do this, I'm going to do this myself. Well, a writer has to do it himself. That's right. And you grew up doing that. Like, that's what you did. But instead of doing like the ghostwriting thing where you talk and tell. But I think you've got so many cool stories that if somebody could help you and write it with you, it would, you know, just basically somebody there to put the... I, I, I need a I need a key because once I get to something I can dig it out of here but I need something to turn it on a key to so somebody to visit with you yeah like we're doing right here right exactly. now yeah and you ask the right questions and I'll, I'll have some answers for you I don't know if they're the right answers but I, I'll have some recollection that's a lot of pressure to put on me well <laughs> You're the one putting the pressure. I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not in no way a reporter or a writer. Okay. So, <laughs> well, you must be before what you're doing. A reporter and a writer to some extent. I just, I just really like talk. I, I like um, uh, talking to people and think, mm. like hearing their stories. Everybody's got a crazy cool story. I mean, I'll um, tell you a crazy cool story. All right. I was based in Philadelphia. I had to go up to New York. I was working for Chilton Company, which was the uh, trade journals. Mm-hmm. And I was Eastern editor for Gas Magazine. And I had to go up to New York to interview or talk to uh, a lot of the big deals in the energy industry in New York City. So I took my tape recorder with me. Oh, that's. My tape recorder was as big as this door. <laughs> didn't have, it didn't have any wheels on it, and I had to lug that thing. It so was a reel-to-reel 
tape recorder. For people that can't see, it's about a 24-inch by 18-inch yeah, door. Yeah, 18, 18 by, yeah. it's about that size. Yeah, 24 by 18-inch tape recorder. Yeah, and 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 12 inches wide. <laughs> and no wheels. And I'm getting on a railroad train in Philadelphia, climbing on that train with that box in my hand. Climbing up, to, you know, it's pretty narrow getting into a railroad car. Yes, sir. And then sitting on a seat if, if, if nobody had that seat next to me, my tape recorder did. And then lugging it all the way through Manhattan from the Penn Station to wherever I was going for the interview and back. So it was a little bit different now when you have a tape recorder about the size of this, uh, you know, two inches oh, by it's three your phone inches. Now. Oh, yeah. It's or your phone or now. a little thing that fits in your pocket and nobody knows you have it. Nope. Which I don't have right now, I, I swear. <laughs> well, I've got, a, I've got a contraption recording too, so okay. it's fair game okay. at this point. <laughs> no. That's crazy. I have, uh, uh, in the newspaper business back in the old days, you had a desk that was U-shaped. Have I told you about the U-shaped slot? No. Desk? Okay. The desk was U-shaped, and on the outside of the U sat the uh, news editors, and on the inside, the slot man got the, the stories from the wire machines or wherever and handed them off to various news editors for the editing that was needed. In my home today, 1945 to, 19, to 2019, in my home today, I'm surrounded by computers. I'm the slot man with three computers around me. Oh, wow. I'm going back to my childhood. <laughs> Not literally speaking, but yeah, that's that's how I live. Well, Mr. Harper, Bill Harper, Bill. Yes, sorry, indeed. I don't want to mess up. I'm, no. That that was that. That's something that I grew up. I would get slapped in the back of the head if um, I didn't. And say don't ever call me William or your dead meat. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you know. On Wikipedia, if you go, if you look up the. Um, the prison I looked up the like the little prison thing I was reading on that and then it, at the bottom like it has references the second I think it's the second one it's a list like a link to your book mm. and it says William Harper oh yeah it would it would there but don't ever call me that that's all I can say <laughs> uh, I have records on a engine with uh, uh, who is it Scott and White whatever the B is I forgot Baylor. Baylor, Scott and White, where they had me down as William T. Harper, and they would, William, William, it's call me Bill. So now on my official records at Baylor, Scott and White, it's Bill T. Harper. That's hilarious. <laughs> you got to change it. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Well. I meant for them to change it anyhow. We have talked for an hour. Oh, my gosh. So. Thank you. And I've absolutely enjoyed every moment of it. Well, and sometime moment. when you want to talk some more, I'm, uh, if I'm still alive, I'm available. Absolutely. I, I don't know what I can tell you more, but I'll try. Oh, you! Uh, I'm not even close to done. We just scratched the surface <laughs> on items. <laughs> like I could just keep going. And I would be much obliged if you would send me, I don't care, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean for editing, but something that I can pass on to absolutely. my family. Yeah, any part of this tape that I can pass on to my family because I've told them story, I've told you stories that I haven't told. Them. Do you, I can email it to you? Sure. And um, I can I can send the podcast to you. I can text it to you. However you want it. Every way possible. All right. I'll I will definitely do it. Are we finished now? We are finished.